0: It was 1997 in Palo Alto, California. I was sitting seventh row from the States, listening to a man named Tony Campolo talk about loving people well. He talked about neighbors and kids. He told a story about Jesus I'd heard a million times before, a story about touching and healing a leper. Then he started talking about poverty, global poverty specifically. He talked about the sacred responsibility that Jesus followers have, specifically to children left behind by political and economic systems. I was convinced. I was moved. I'd heard these stories before. I'd heard talks about poverty before. But something about Tony's delivery captured me. There was no guilt in me, just a clear and resonant awakening to harder, darker realities about which I could and therefore should do something. And also this, a clearer picture of the people in those realities, not just as potential objects of my generosity, but as human beings. Years later, I found myself holding a microphone and trying to replicate what I'd seen and heard from Tony Campolo. And I couldn't, because it's hard. Like any other great art, being a convincing storyteller can look easy from a distance and can feel like the most natural thing in the world to do. But the work that goes into becoming one and the skill set required are both rarities. I've worked at that skill set for well over a decade and a half. And in that time, I've seen and heard a lot of storytellers whose job it was and intention it was to move listeners to redemptive action. Sean Groves is, in my opinion, the best there is. A songwriter for many years, a faithful and loving dad and husband, Sean's capacity to lovingly capture an audience and then call them to action is unparalleled. I like learning from his work, and I like calling him a friend. Check it out.
1: How are you? I'm good. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, man. I, 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 it's weird. It's hard, but we're okay. We're and we'll be okay. It's just a little. It's a little. It's a little bit nerve wracking, but I'm not freaking out. Um, we'll be fine. You know, like our our worst case scenario is better than a lot of people's actual scenarios and best cases. So
1: that's been, that's been hard for us because um, we had been saving up because my oldest is in her freshman year of college. And now every other year I'll be sending another child to college or technical school or whatever's next for them. Um, And so we had, I can't pay for all of it myself, but we had put aside a little (laughs) and, so because of that like I can make it a few months. And I feel bad about that. Like yeah. in my little super my little suburb of a suburb of a suburb of Nashville. Yeah. Um we haven't been hard hit by the virus. I don't know anyone personally who has it. Um I don't know anybody personally who's really suffering financially from the fallout of it yet. Yet. Yeah. So I feel, I feel like this huge disparity between like my own experience, this mm. the lines and the social media around it. It like gets totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm kind of getting to feel what people must feel when you and I go out and speak about people <laughs> in need in some far off place. And then and they're going, huh, really? Like yeah. that's happening out there somewhere. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard for me to really feel connected to it. Yeah. And so that along That's with, good. um, so I feel a little bad that I, that I am, um, that I'm not suffering in some way yet with that. Um, <laughs>
0: which is such a weird isn't thing. That, feel like, isn't
1: that weird? You know, it's I, so weird. I haven't been hit hard by know. this. I have no fun. I feel yeah, guilty like, for being okay. It's well, and I don't know that i even say guilt. It just feels, I don't know. Like. I'm used to compassion being more of a, of a, like suffering with. And so I'm not emotionally, I'm feeling more emotionally disconnected from everything that's happening. It's just like, it's facts, but it doesn't have a face yet for me. It's like a problem, but it's not personal. Um, and so that's weird. And then also with that, not feeling super useful, like I tried to volunteer with a few organizations nearby like that were doing very practical stuff for people and I went online to fill out like the questionnaire before yeah. you even get to the interview process yes. and i i tick i couldn't tick any of the boxes of skills they were looking <laughs> for like i God. have literally nothing to contribute <laughs> that's not okay and that is a, that's a weird feeling for a me weird feeling. yeah
0: and again they go to like those you know the, the other parallels uh, like you know when you know, people's parents are like, I've got to go get a job. And they're like, they head down to like the Starbucks or whatever to go get a job. And they're, and they're like, I don't know how to use this machine. Like we're in that place. we are like, Oh, there's skills that yeah. I don't have that apparently people need. <laughs> and I've, I've built the last 25 yeah. years on the stuff I know. And now a lot mm-hmm. of that's gone.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. It's all pretty, it's all fairly useless. <laughs> it's
0: all yeah. fairly, fairly useless. It's like, it's a good name for really anything, but probably a band. It's a good band name. Ladies and gentlemen, fairly useless.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which, because I'm not even like, not even sounds like it sounds like an insult. I almost said I'm not even a musician, <laughs> I'm not even an artist anymore. Like that's not much, and I'm not even that. That's not how I mean it. That's but I mean low, like I'm not. am not even hit that low bar no, of being an artist. well like you're, you're a pastor in a local church settings. So there are people for you to shepherd and care for and comfort and, and engage with. And you've got, I was just reading about the outbreak in your city and in your area at a local nursing up. Like there's, there's stuff in your backyard. There are people right there in your orbit you can take care of. I don't really have that official, right. <laughs> you know, position in my community. Yeah. And then you're, you also just put out amazing music so that feels really productive. Like, man, you're putting beautiful things out into the world. But I've spent the last 15 years of my life actually not building a platform of my own yeah. and stepping out on other people's platforms. And those platforms all got canceled for yes, the next – Yes, it. <laughs> How many months? That's what you get for so- banking on other people, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> John so it's just a, it's when you say how am i doing there's there's a whole lot of thoughts that come to my yeah, head man. i i'm I'm doing relatively to every the rest of the world fantastic but I'm also doing like weird yeah it just relative, feels to, really weird.
0: relative to your own life the the self evaluation of this season of life is a it's a doozy um, yeah i will i want to uh, I, we're definitely going to come back around and talk about like you your personal platform some choices you made in terms of like like how you how how you present and how you've you know, you've you know kind of postured yourself publicly, but <clears throat> I do it a little bit. You're you are in Nashville now, you're calling from Nashville, but the area yes. You're a Texan
1: <laughs> originally, yeah. Would you yeah. still consider? Uh,
0: does Texas still feel like home to you? Is the, is or is Nashville home? Yeah. Like when you think
1: <clears throat> home.
0: Because so uh, much of what sh- you do um, has to do with geography. You're in a particular town uh, on a tour, and you're trying to connect people who live in this place with folks who live in a different place. And the, and the kids you advocate for, their geography absolutely matters. I've, I've heard you tell stories a lot about like being from Texas and, and being a Texan, but you've lived in Nashville for a t- little more than a decade
1: Oh, dude. Longer than that. Oh, really? um, I moved here. Yeah, I moved here in 97. Oh my gosh.
0: Okay. So does Nashville feel like home? Does Texas feel like home? Do you have like,
1: what's that? What's home for you? Gosh, your brain works in incredible, beautiful ways. <laughs> the way you connect. Like, up. I, I, I hadn't thought about all those. Okay, dude. good. The, well, geog- the role that geography plays in my life. Well, I'll, I'll walk you through uh, it. Yeah, it's... That's, well, no, that's really interesting. Um, I've never really thought about it that way. Uh, the, the 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 easy question, the bottom shelf question: Do I consider myself a Texan? Yes, um, I do. It's it's um, I haven't I I haven't I've only lived in two states, only in in Texas and Tennessee. So that's all I have to compare. Right. And the state patriotism of Texas, like it's. It's almost cult level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love sure. of st- – I would even say like more than love of country. Like I remember after nine eleven, 11 this poll came out in Texas Monthly. Of course, they were polling people who read a thing called Texas Monthly. But um, what they discovered was that people were more likely to go to war to defend Texas than they were to defend the country. Wow. Um, yeah. And then – I moved to Tennessee, and and Tennessee, at least the Nashville area, is really an a oasis of transplants. And so you've got people from Michigan who come here for the auto industry. You've got people who come from overseas for medical. You've got Floridians who – we've got a lot of Floridians and Texans here. And people just come from all over for music, but music isn't the only industry. So anyway, we're just big hodgepodge of people from yeah. everywhere. And I don't know if that's why, but there's not a lot of state pride or patriotism where I am. Like, I just don't. It doesn't give off that vibe. Yeah. Now, maybe, maybe as someone coming from, I don't know, Ohio, maybe it feels like um, people here are particularly prideful about the state, but I don't really sense that.
0: Every Texan I know, every person I know, who's either from Texas, at some point in their lives, or, or especially folks who live there, there really is that like, yes, I'm. It is, I think you're right. Like, there's it's like, sure, you're an American, but like, I'm a Texan. Like, it's it's <laughs> it's like a whole it really, and and they you know reserve the right to become. a whole other. It is this whole other thing. Yeah. So, do you feel like when you come back from a tour and you land back where you are,
1: does it feel like? home? Do you have a sense of home anymore? Yeah, it does. And I live in a very small town. When we moved to this little town, um, it's an exurb (laughs) way. It's pretty far. It would take me like almost an hour to get to the Nashville airport from where I live. And it, it has one main street. Um, it's very quaint, small. Now it's becoming less that way as like we got a couple of big box stores and chain restaurants or whatever, but, but it still has a very small town feel to it. Hmm. Um, well, I see the same people everywhere I go in the city. Um, I don't necessarily know their names, but I keep seeing the same faces. I mean, to me, small, <laughs> Again I guess this is relative to a Texas town, but yes. uh, it's like, I don't know, 30,000 people now. Yeah. Um, but when we moved here. It was like half that size. And yeah. that feels it feels good, it feels ho- it feels like home hmm. um, and uh so I'd love and and so it's it's weird when I go back to Texas which I do a couple of times a year to visit family and then uh, also on touring i I love the people that like the friends and family I have there, and the fajitas, but beyond that, it doesn't really have that feeling of home. It's kind of sad,
0: hmm. really.
1: Um, the memories of that of Texas are home for me. Yeah. but the place now it doesn't have the feeling of home anymore.
0: Interesting. That's really interesting. Um your wife also from Texas?
1: Yeah, she's a preacher's kid so she moved around a bit but her parents are Texans and so they eventually did land in Texas for the bulk of her growing up years. Yeah.
0: And was it was it the decision to move to, to kind of be semi like semi divorced from downtown Nashville was that intentional was it like it just was it happenstance it happens to work out for you or is it kind of like we want to be here but we not want to be a little ways away is it kind of that way like, how, like how'd like how you end up where you are
1: yeah it's a good question well when we first moved to Nashville way back in 97 I said my my wife had a real job um, and I, w- I was an unpaid intern at a, at a music company and we so part of it was we couldn't really afford to live in Nashville proper so we lived in a suburb and then as our family grew it got too expensive to live in the suburb and so we went two suburbs away even farther away into this town we're in now which is really just a bedroom community there's not a lot of business here um and it's it this this town was really developed to be for young families just starting out to have an affordable place to live. Yeah. So that it was really financial for us. Um, we honestly at the time didn't want to move this far away from the, the bustle of the city, but it was just impractical for us to go anywhere else. I've, I've got four kids and um, I know it's nothing compared to the price of real estate in California, but for us, it was really pricey um, to find a house that we could all live in. So we had, it was just a, out of necessity, we moved away.
0: When you initially moved 1997, did you you came to Nashville music on the mind, singer, songwriter person. Was this the, that was the plan, the dream. How was it like a th- yeah. was it the, the thing? Like, how did that happen?
1: Well the dream, the dream was uh, uh, to be a singer to be a to be a songwriter for other people was the dream. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I didn't Yeah, so I didn't want to be an artist. I never wanted to be. I I didn't know that. I
0: think I I think I had in my mind that like you had been kind of gigging and playing and then oh, the that the, no the, the songwriting for other people <laughs> thing was a kind of like a peripheral and fruitful thing, you know. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Okay. Cool.
1: No, I I definitely wanted to write for other people. Um I had a lot of health issues. And I, I, I didn't see how on earth I was going to, even if I had wanted to be a musician, I knew there was a lot of travel and touring involved and I didn't see how that was possible. Yeah. Um, and so I met you on my first ever tour. Um, I don't know if you remember the first time we met, it, it was, it's, it's kind of sad. We were at Palm beach Atlantic <laughs> Oh my gosh. and it was on, it was on a tour with, uh, uh, Bebo Norman was a headliner. And then uh, me and Katie Perry, who was going by Katie Hudson, Hudson. at the yeah. time. yep. She was, she was 15 and we were all, we did, I think it was 65 cities. It was a massive tour and it was my first tour. I had never toured. Huh. I'd played, I'd played like five coffee shops ever. Like I just wasn't a performer. Right. Um. So anyway, I ended up doing that. And And when we got to Palm Beach Atlantic on that date, the school was the promoter and they didn't want me and Katie. So they brought you, they brought you in, they bust you in to do the show with Bebo. So it was you and Bebo and then Katie and I just sat in the audience and watched you guys tear it up. And then uh, I met you afterwards.
0: That's a terrible thing. I had nothing. had nothing to do with the decision. <laughs> the decision making.
1: <laughs> I, to, so no. I enjoyed it, man. Okay, good. You're very different, right? Like you had always been. You had always married what, performing music with writing music. Am I right? Like yeah. that was always that always was a thing. Yeah,
0: I've never. I, I've written with other people for the purpose of like I don't know, kind of on the random. But I've never th- kind of gone into something and thought I'm going to write a song for someone else to to take that's a it's an animal like I just I don't have the skill set I don't I don't have the skill set I also don't have like the emotional profile for that like there's like (laughs) but no on the real is like there's like this sort of detachment sort of thing where you write something and they just hand it off there where as opposed to like when if I'm writing a song it's like that's in me and like that's I I have I'm more detached now at 46 like then I you know like if I'm writing something I'm like I'm done with that go but especially early on, like the songs are sort of in my guts. And so I'm writing a song and it's attached to my life. So it, it's a totally different emotional profile to go. And like, I'm writing, I'm writing something for someone else to perform just a, a different vibe entirely. So over the course of time, yeah. you know, being in Nashville, you, you toured a, a fair amount, you work, you got connected with compassion international and the the you married advocacy with with the performing singer songwriter thing is that is that how that went or is there some more nuance to that?
1: Um, I'm <clears throat> interested mean, more nuance. I, I don't I don't know how much you would care to to know the new. I'll tell you and give me the give me the, the whole. Edit. I want the whole thing, <laughs> whole caboodle i worked for I worked for a children's ministry when I was in college a a a children's home that was linked to a denomination which shall go unnamed and they did <laughs> they and they did it and they did really good work, but they didn't do the work that um I thought they were doing, and oh. so part of my job was to lead this choir of kids. And we would go and sing at a church within that denomination. And then um, I wouldn't make any kind of appeal for people to support. But the pastor would usually get up and go, hey, isn't this great? And these kids bless us. Let's bless them. Let's give to the work that such and such children's home is doing. And they would talk about the work. But the longer I was there, the more I I realized that while they were doing good work, it wasn't all the work they claimed to be doing. Mm. So when I graduated, Mm. I graduated with the degree in music composition and cynicism. And I moved to Nashville. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, wanting to be a songwriter, but when I went on that first tour with Bebo and Katie, Bebo was very much <clears throat> linking arms with Compassion International and would speak for them every night. And I was seeing kids being sponsored, and I was just super skeptical. So I began to form a relationship mm-hmm. with a person who worked at Compassion named Susie Johnson who yeah. – um, had connected Bebo with compassion and, and her job was to connect artists with compassion. And so she was talking to me about the things that I sing and say from stage and how that really worked, you know, fits so well with compassion and, and not in like a salesy way, but like, I felt like genuinely encouraging way. And so I wanted it to be real, but I just really just didn't think it was. I just right. thought, you know, people are getting played here. This yeah. I've, I've seen this before. Yeah. Um, And so four years of friendship with Susie, four years of her just, you know, putting a word in here and there, finally just to make her shut up, I went on a trip with compassion as a skeptic. And I was very clear about that. Hmm. Um, And I met a child that I sponsored, honestly sponsored that child just for the purposes of the trip. uh, Hmm. Because, you know, I wanted to meet a child I sponsored. And, so I didn't really have a long relationship with this kid, It was fairly new sponsorship. Um, and so I met her and met her family and um, looked in file cabinets that I wanted to look in, not the ones they said I could look in, looked in rooms that I wanted to look in, not the ones they brought me into. I mean, I was, I was really a jerk about it, honestly. <laughs> uh, you're going to take away. this organization down. On your first trip? Came. Well, my wife's an auditor, so a professional skeptic. Um, and we just had lots of questions, and I came away with my questions answered. That's cool. um, and, you know, it's like, which disciple of Jesus took the gospel the farthest? Hmm. It, was, it was Thomas. Hmm. He took it all the way to India, the farthest. Yet he was the most in Scripture openly skeptical. Yeah. There's something about turning a skeptic into a believer. Yes. That man when they buy like that personality when you buy into something you are fully bought in. Yeah. And so that that's how I became fully bought in. That's good.
0: At some point, like there's the, uh, you know, I'm assuming there's like a natural um, shift over time where like the sort of the things, the the tide begins to turn, but then you also have to make a decision about like, here's what I'm going to focus on, concentrate on. Like, was that, was there a lot of, was there tension for you? Were you, did you like happily like move more away from the rock and roll lifestyle thing or like, how did that work out for you? How did that work in your life in terms of decision making? Were there indicators? A lot of folks have to, especially over the course of the time, whether it's art or industry or whatever, make a change. Where it's like, hey, this is what I was. This is what I was doing. But like, as artist type folks, like, there's this identity thing that comes with, like, oh, you're singer songwriter person. And then if you move away from that, people are like, oh, so what happened? Like, and you're like, what do you mean what happened? Like, I'm doing other things. Get off yeah. my back. Like, can you talk about like that transition, your decision making? Like, what were your indicators? How did that work?
1: Oh, man, it was ugly. Um, <laughs> and, there, and there was a lot of anger and grief. Oh, man. Um, I didn't connect with compassion and really, really get good. At speaking on, on, on their behalf, but, but beyond speaking on behalf of compassion, just speaking better, more compassionately, more graciously, more intelligently about all the related issues of generosity and justice and compassion and the mission of God and the kingdom of God. Like I didn't really hit my stride on all of that until my label was going under. Hmm. And worship music had taken over radio. And without that support from radio and retail, we didn't really have an alternative way to market what we did. And so my label full of singer-songwriters, Chris Rice, Jenny Owens, Watermark, me, that label just began to sink. Hmm. And so for me, um, I went through a season of first being really pissed off at the how the industry had changed around me yeah um all the changes the move towards uh, being positive that didn't leave room for introspective and theological the move toward um, fewer songs half as many songs being played which left no room for the songs at the edges that might push things toward creativity and new forms Um, the move just toward radio having more power than it ever had had over my wow. life. And, and these people I thought were my, my friends, cause I went to their studio and we took pictures and I was laughing with them on their morning show and now they're not playing me. And there was just a lot of, it was just a storm of pissed off. Yeah. And that was hard, but I was also angry at God hmm. Uh, because how dare he give me something I loved and was so passionate about and could be so useful to him with, and then take away and then take away the platform yeah. that would allow me to do that on a big scale. Yeah, Like I had sung for years, okay, things like things that were true and good, but nothing that really lit me up and made me feel, um, just like I was truly firing on all cylinders like speaking for compassion and so when I finally found that thing like my thing my purpose God took away my platform wow and that's so frustrating when platform and purpose arrive in your life at different times yeah and I was just angry so there there really was like an
0: identity crisis for you It was like this is who I am this is what I do oh my- this is this is my best use on on the planet and now it's going away you're it, taking it away
1: what the hell everybody's undermining ah. yeah everybody's undermining it like what is going on here i mm. don't understand and i felt angry at myself for not figuring this out sooner right. like when i was playing for 2000 <laughs> people a night why couldn't i've sent them to something better than a merch table at the end of the day interesting That's you know but I, I went and and so i was mad at myself cuz i felt like i'd wasted the opportunity so. and it really took years of um, uh, screwing up relationships with people in the industry hmm. um, and having them be real honest with me like, bro, this isn't our fault. <laughs> like, this, we're all in this together. Like, we're all trying to figure out how do we exist in the digital age and things are going to change and people always get left behind and change. Like, it just took years of other people's perspectives. It took counseling. Um, it took eventually severe depression to just help me figure out first of all that I was angry, yeah, and then what yeah. am I supposed to do with it? what? What? How do, are you supposed to deal with that? <laughs> yeah. know, because good boy, good Christian boys and girls don't get angry, and if they <laughs> do, they certainly don't tell anybody about it. Yeah, man. Um, so I mean, it was a long process, and honestly, I'm I, I'm I'm not angry anymore. But I am certainly in an identity crisis of feeling like um, I really stopped building any kind of brand or platform, for lack of a better word, for myself. Yeah. Um, and the last time I made an album that, like you said, was that uh, Third World Symphony album was really more, I had some things I wanted to say, sure, but I also had a lot of pressure of people trying to still make me that person. Like, you're the artist guy. Um, and so you should do that. Like that's, that's how I first knew you. So that's what you should keep being. Yeah. And I still, I'm still struggling with other people's expectations and trying to discern in the middle of all that. Okay. But, but who am I? Yeah. And you're 46, I'm 46. It's a weird thing to get on the other side of 45 and I'm, it's, it's not a crisis, but it certainly is a season of me going, okay, who, who do I want to (laughs) be? Yeah, And um, what am I supposed to be? And I've always thought in very utilitarian terms, like how could I be most useful? Yep. And now I'm starting to deal with maybe that's not the best question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And really this COVID quarantine that we're all forced into has kind of made me deal with that now. Mm-hmm. Of so much of my identity is wrapped up in how useful am I to yeah, people. Man. And I am not useful to anybody right now. So does that mean that I stop being? Hmm. Um and what implications does that have for my life after this? Yeah. How's that really going to change the questions I'm asking as I figure out what am I supposed to to be?
0: That's really good. I don't know.
1: That was a, That was a lot. Sorry to dump all that on you. No, that's what I mean. That's what that
0: cuz that's like that's the that's the actual stuff that's the the actual emotional engine that drives the doing of things. So like, it's one thing to be like, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to change jobs. And I should say it like this. Like, I think we pretend we, I almost never talk this way, but I think folks tend to pretend as if it's like, Hey, I'm just going to make a decision to a job change. And maybe there are a few people, like a handful of folks who don't identify all the altogether that deeply with their own productivity I think the vast majority of folks do. I think that like that sense of usefulness and identity. I mean, it's like there is like a, a kind of a lacking theology of work in America. We just like don't know how to think about work and identity and theology and relationship to the world. It's just a, it's a job. It's either a job and you don't care about it, or it's a job and it's your whole freaking everything. And there's so little. Right. There's so little like it's conversation or space in between. But like, even when folks like I used to, you know, I used to be a teacher and now I'm a, you know, or, and now I do this, like there Ooh. is this identity loss and making that tra- making that transition can, can, can honestly send people into depression and can like, you like unlock all kinds of like weird crap in relationships. And so that's That is the yeah. engine that drives a lot of that stuff is like, I do some yeah. of what I do at the very least because it's, because I believe it's who I am, especially deeper into life. Um, sure. Your advocacy piece. But I'll oh, say that
1: we where we're, are the freedom you and I have to be all angsty and introspective about <laughs> all these decisions though is itself a product of privilege. Oh yes. That's so good, because I, like I have options, I can choose to do something only for money or I can also choose to do something I love that makes less money, but still know my kids are going to eat. And I think that's a weird thing too, yeah, that man. there are many people, most people in the world who don't have that option. The, the, the biggest, um, Job, uh, the, the largest vocation in the world is day laborer, which means every day you go out and you take any job you can get for that day with no long-term commitment to you or by you to get food to have bread for that day. So just the fact that I can <laughs> sit in my office and begin to think, hmm, what would I like to do <laughs> with my life? That is hard for me, too. Yeah. You know, like that's it's not a guilt thing for me, but it is definitely a weird thing of going, well, if that is the question that every human should ideally be asking, then why isn't every human in a position where they could be asking it? Hmm. You know, that's good. You're surrounded
0: by like stories about folks who are underprivileged, who are not privileged. Like it reinforms the way because your job over the course of years has has like has put you in a position to actually have to care about folks, legitimately human beings, who don't live with the kind of privilege you do. And that's informed your life to some degree.
1: Yeah, and it's it's in good ways and in paralyzing ways. <clears throat> so at this season, it's hard to be able to kind of take take my own uh questions about my about my identity and my work and my future very seriously <laughs> yeah. because i I realize what a weird thing it is that I even have the ability to do that like I have the freedom to do that, and my kids are still going to eat mm. um, so anyway I mean it's a rabbit trail but that that's, that's something that I think about about what a weird what a weird thing what a gift really, yeah. but what a weird gift it is to be able to do that, and I guess we haven't really told people like what it is that I exactly do like yeah, you say advocacy no, I no longer do concerts anymore I haven't done a concert in I don't know six seven years yeah. like I haven't I don't do concerts at all um, but what I do is I step out on someone else's stage so that might be at a conference that might be at a church on a Sunday morning that usually that's in uh, that's out uh, touring with other artists and so their audiences show up for them. And my name's on the ticket. And they don't know who I am. Yeah, And I don't even tell them who I am. And then I step out and try to be more than a commercial, try to do something that's, that's uh, truly beneficial to everyone who's hearing it and entertaining and engaging and enlightening. But in the end, I'm hoping that somebody in the room Will sponsor a child with Compassion International. Yeah, and and you and me and like two other guys are the only ones I know who do that. Hmm. Um, it's a really small fraternity. Yeah, and it's a strange job. It's it's super weird job that no one else really understands.
0: (laughs) No, but so talking to folks, talking to folks, um, doing the you know asking folks to make it you know to to make a sacrifice it's a dollar 23 cents a day it's $38 a month can you talk <laughs> about like th- th- one of the <laughs> one of the ups that folks have with the advocacy piece um <clears throat> is and you can vamp on this in, in any way you want is can you talk about like developing the skill as a storyteller and a speaker as someone who wants to move people into a decision I, w- I want you to sponsor a child can you talk about like how do you personally discern the line between being a convincing storyteller and being a manipulator? Because the da- the the you know the dark side for folks is like here's the guy that's gonna come and make a sales pitch. Here's the guy that's gonna manipulate emotionally manipulate people into like making this decision. Where like, that's not, I, I don't think, you know, on better days, at, at least it's, that's not actually in my heart. I don't want to manip- manipulate you into making a decision. I do want to tell you a convincing story. I do think you should be emotionally moved by it. How do you, in your mind, how do you discern or divide the, you know, between being a convincing storyteller, telling a truth that you think people should be moved by versus like manipulating folks and just being a salesman is like, do you have a, do you have like a. Do you have like a mantra or pills you take? Like, how, like, like, <laughs> like, what, like how, how does that get worked out in you?
1: I discovered the line between being a persuasive storyteller and being a manipulator by crossing it. Wow, good. Um, early on when I was an artist and I first came uh, to partner with Compassion in 2005 – I was so passionate, but not wise. And I didn't have anybody at Compassion um, teaching me how to do this. Um, They're better at that now. But at the time, it was just, man, here are some packets. Yeah. Have at it. Yeah. And so (laughs) I took way too much time in my concert. I sort of vomited up every statistic I knew. Yep. I would throw, you know, scripture at them, usually Matthew 25 and, and, and I just thought, man, I could just, I don't know, like if they, I felt very passionate about it and I felt very convinced it was real and good and biblical and effective. And I was just trying to, to, to push them every way that I knew every, every way that I could. Um, and there was a lot of guilt and there was a lot of condemnation. There was some, some anger you know, the only reason this statistic is true because God's people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Like I just really pushed and it felt gross, but I knew that what I, I knew my intention was good, but I knew my method was, was wrong. Mm. I just didn't know what was wrong about it. And, and one night instead of doing all that, I just told, the story about my first trip I took with compassion and it was not heavy handed at all. Um, and I prayed for them and we had a much larger response than normal. Hmm. And I didn't, I don't take the, the response as necessary, like a God's approval. Um, I know people who see a much greater response than I do and they do it with shame and guilt. That wasn't, that wasn't effective for me. And it right. felt gross to yeah. me, yep. And, um, and when I just told a simple story, um, and just gave clear directions, Hey, if this is something you want to do, here's how to do it tonight. It suddenly became more effective and didn't feel nasty. Mm. It felt, um, but, but the other, so, so I discerned that line, I discerned that there was a line first of all, by crossing it. And then I accidentally discovered, uh, the power of just a personal story. Um, but then there was a third major change. I went and led a trip to India. It was the, the some of the most shocking things I've ever seen. And then came back, and normally I would take a week off um, to adjust back to life here and, and jet lag and all that. And I didn't. I immediately went and spoke at this massive megachurch. And their pastor got up after I spoke and essentially unasked. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. He was saying, look,
1: we're behind on our building fund. And so look, if if you have, if you we're gonna go ahead and collect for that, and then if you have more to give, and like almost nobody sponsored a child. And I was really, really I was really angry. Yeah. And I spoke with Wes Stafford, who at the time was the president of Compassion, and he said something that I has, you know, if there is a mantra, this is it. Hmm. He said, we have to pray and ask God to make us as compassionate toward the big and the rich as we are toward the small and the poor. Amen. And he talked to me about how a lack of compassion on some people's part is a form of poverty. It's Mm -hmm. a poverty of perspective. It's a poverty of information. Maybe it's a poverty of of, of empathy and sympathy and compassion there's a, there's a spiritual poverty going on there and yeah. so instead of being angry or instead of trying to push people to do something we can show up and love them in much the same way that we love the children we're trying to help and to, and to really prayerfully say how can i actually serve this audience tonight yeah because the ultimate service isn't getting them to sponsor a kid The ultimate service is I'd like them to see something of who God is and what God cares about and how God works, whether you're going to join it by sponsoring a kid through compassion or world vision or food for the hungry or teaching a Sunday school class or just bringing groceries to a neighbor or just cutting off a work at five and loving your kids better. Like however that is, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. But like ultimately I'm loving my audience. I'm being compassionate toward them by giving them something. Something broader and deeper yes. and more beautiful, um, a bigger call. And so, if yeah. I if I'm focused on that, that bigger call and that compassion, it keeps me from being manipulative. That's really good. To actually
0: love the folks in front of you instead of want to use them to accomplish great things is like right. what a tr- what a trick. Because that's just not a thing for the most part. Folks get trained to do. A gospel in which like an actual good news that is good news to poor folks should also be good news to those who can help poor folks. and that's that I mean what a what a journey to actually come to that as opposed to just being because I get it, like just being pissed.' But like, you're gonna buy yeah. a building for seven million seven you know spend on, and then I'm asking you for a dollar twenty three cents and how to not be mad about that and actually but right. care about those folks. That's a trick, man. That's tough.
1: Well, on a practical level too, you know, compassion measures a thing called retention, and you know about that, but yeah. your listeners may not know. But they look at like, okay, six months after that person sponsored a child at that conference, are they still sponsoring? What about a year later? What about three years? What about five years? What about six years later? Are they still are. They still engaged. Are they still are they writing letters? Are they? Like are they are they actually engaged, are they giving more than just their money? Like they're looking at like the quality and the duration of every sponsorship. Yeah. And man, they've got data to show that look, the people who get out there and and are super are and are manipulative, like there's a there's a correlation. I, I not only think that God isn't pleased by that sacrifice, you know, second yeah. Corinthians nine. He loves a cheerful giver. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Realize God's giving his, given his, he's, he scattered his gifts to the poor among the nations. And hey, one of them happened to be in my wallet and I get to now give it. Yeah. That's, that's a different attitude. And, and so I think that kind of attitude is pleasing to God, but also it bears itself out in the numbers that people just don't stick with it. Like guilt doesn't last. No. Shame doesn't last. It's not a motivator.
0: No.
1: Um, but understanding how what you're doing is connected to something much bigger and much deeper and much more eternal, that gives me gratitude and joy yes. I can give from, and that
0: lasts. Um, I want to wrap it up and talk about this. You've been doing um, throughout the course of Lent, which is Lent's always my favorite season of the, of the year. Just I just I have wonderful time, and even even now, like well, I wouldn't say even now, yeah, even especially. I don't know. <laughs> Regardless, I guess, is like the, of the season we're in, like Lent still, like, there's some, <laughs> there is this kind of shimmer. There's a thing that happens online uh, and elsewhere where like there's just sort of a different vibe, at least for me. Uh, you've been doing uh, pretty much every day some sort of a writing, some sort of a like a teaching meditation throughout the course of Lent. Um, the, like today's Betrayal Wednesday, you wrote a piece. Uh, Just on Betrayal Wednesday, can you talk a little bit about like what you're doing right, like what you what you've been doing throughout the course of Lent? What are you doing right now in terms of like writing and teaching through Lent for your audience? Like, what are you doing, and why are you doing that?
1: I'm I'm weighing how much I want to share with you. <laughs>
0: oh, oh, look at that! I <laughs> love
1: it. <laughs> as much as I, uh, you're comfortable with it, it is a form of spiritual discipline. Yeah. This year, um, it takes me several hours every day to research and to write, and my wife helps me edit it. Um, and I rewrite and sometimes rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and it's a it's a real spiritual discipline for me to do something that really scares me, so writing is something that terrifies me it's so weird how we're all different like i can the last tour I did, I was stepping out in arenas. 10, 12,000 people. And I didn't feel any fear at all. Like it's really, like I know that's weird. I know that should terrify me, (laughs) but it doesn't. Um, But writing and then putting it out into the world where I can't revise it. I can't change it. um, That is really terrifying. Like Mm. the people that are on my list of heroes, like the people who are like the evil Knievels of the creative world are people like you and Scott Erickson and Ann Voskamp and um, just friends I have who, who write and are prolific at it and seem to be completely um, just unfazed that people are watching it, that they might get something wrong, that someone might disagree, yeah. um, or that it might suck. Um, I, I really admire that like I'm not just blowing s- smoke like I I really marvel at what you do and you do it so well and I just was tired of not doing something because it scared me yeah man so I decided that I would give up fear for lint that's good and I would I would I I do every year I I do I have my own linting rituals I go through and this year I decided I would just Post that online.
0: That's good.
1: Now, I did disable comments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And my, my, the, uh, I know we probably don't have time to get into this, but to, to me, like if I were sitting you and I down to talk about something I find really interesting that you and I should talk about, it's that you and I are, we have very different. Um, we, we occupy very different spaces in the American Christian subculture. Yeah. (laughs) And so the things that like, I not only admire and respect what you do as a writer, but that you have, I sense like more freedom Hmm. in some of the things that you say and how you can say them Hmm. that I don't really have. Um, some of the things that you say and the way you say them wouldn't really fly in the circles that I'm in, like my online, not my real life world, the <laughs> online, the subscribe, the subscribers to my website, the people who know me as a recording artist or, um, or have now met me because they've come to some conference or show that I spoke at. Right. It, I love those people but they're very different. I sense is they're very different than your people. Yeah. A little bit, <laughs> and, at least a little bit different. And, and my people scare me. Yeah.
0: Um, my, and my people I'm, scare me. And I think there's probably something really. You, oh yeah. And, and the, yeah, yeah. At some point you and I should probably have a little bit <laughs> like an extension of conversation about like, like left, left leaning versus right leaning people. And the, and the and the, the particular terrors that come from either side of those leanings? So I'm
1: not like uh, super into the Enneagram thing. Like I'm not – I don't know that much about it. But I've had friends who are much more knowledgeable about it tell me that I'm a one. And I don't think they meant that as a compliment. <laughs> 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 and, and then I have uh, – what I think they call it a wing is a nine. So ones tend toward perfectionism and nines tend toward – peace and like caring too much about what people think about them. And that's a really scary combo. And that's what keeps me writing is that I'm afraid of not doing it with excellence. Yeah. That's good. Um, That's the one. But then I'm afraid that if it just one wrong word, like no intention on my part at all, but just one wrong word make would make people think I'm being political or that I'm not, I'm not passing some litmus test yeah. or um, whatever. And yeah. then that's the ninth part of me that goes, oh man, I don't want people to be pissed at me. Yeah, you want So to there's the this peace. constant that's tension good. of wanting to be a truth teller, but not wanting to be a people repeller. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know how to do both of those. Yeah, And I don't, I would love to know how you do, like, how <laughs> do you, do you just not care about, do you not care about the... I don't know. Like, wh- how do you do that?
0: I don't. I'm working it out too. I, I am working out too, and and that's fantastic. And you know, I I, I thank God for you, and I uh, appreciate your time
1: today, man. Well, thank you. Thanks. Uh, it's just re- it's super encouraging to me just to be with somebody who get who gets what it, who gets what we do, <laughs> and 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 sees us as more as more than a commercial. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. You got it, man.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you'd like to follow up with Sean Groves, you can visit him at seangroves.com. It's actually S-H-A-U-N, Sean, and Groves is G-R-O-V-E-S, seangroves.com. His website hosts his very thoughtful and engaging blog. And also from there, you can contact Sean directly and help me convince him to write a book because he totally should You can visit me at justinmcroberts.com, and if you'd like to help us do what we're doing with this podcast, you can jump to patreon.com and just search my name, Justin McRoberts. We would love to have you on the team. Until next time.